Hello and welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. This is where we discuss issues impacting the industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. We get right to the point, more so than we did in our first 18 episodes, because this is episode number 19. Hey, I'm getting to be an old hand at this podcasting stuff. You know what? I wrote an article about this topic that we're going to cover today, and some of you read my blog, some of you see my stuff on social media, which I very much appreciate. You can find me at, at Damien P. Mason, that's at Damien P. Mason, uh, D-A-M-I-A-N P. Mason on Twitter. I'm avoiding some aspects of Twitter only because it gets so toxic. Doing a lot of stuff on Facebook, my professional page is Damien Mason, you can like it, and you can find me on LinkedIn. So I put an article out uh, a week or so ago, welcome to the new normal. And I was talking about agriculture because we in the business of agriculture sometimes run for the exits, screaming fire, like, oh my God, hellfire and brimstone, crickets are coming. I mean, it's it's seven years of, of, uh, seven years of grasshoppers overtaking the fields. I know it's tough out there in some sectors, but that's what has always been normal about this industry. I'm 48 years old. I started my first job in agriculture. I was eight years old. I started bottle feeding the calves. That was my evening assignment. Every night I took care of the pins, putting in the bedding, and uh, feeding and bottle feeding the calves on the dairy farm. I've been around this a while. We were dairy farmers, your typical Midwestern dairy farm in the 1970s and 80s. We milked you know, 50, 60 cows, farmed four or 500 acres. Very much a traditional Midwestern dairy farm of its era. And you know what? I've been around a little bit. I always make the point. I got into comedy because I'm an observer. When you are in a, a professional comedian, you're really a professional observer. With that in mind, I've been observing agriculture my whole life because I had a front row seat. You probably did too, because most people in the business of agriculture came up in the industry of agriculture. So let's talk about the state of the agricultural economy. That's what we're here to discuss today. So welcome to the new Ag Normal. That's the subject of today. I love that you're listening. Please, you know, become a fan, subscribe. Man, this thing is building. I'm getting more and more listenership all the time. I know I'm a few years late to the party. I know I should have been podcasting a long time ago. Shame on me. My marketing friend tells me this all the time. He's like, why did you wait so long? You've got a hell of a presence out there. You've got all these speeches you're doing with hundreds of people, every audience you do, and they would like more. So anyway, this is the Business of Agriculture podcast. I normally bring on a guest. I normally bring on a guest, and I thought, who should I bring on to talk about the state of ag normal, the ag economy as I see it right now? And it dawned on me, wait a minute, an ag economist would be the perfect guest, but it's going to be somewhere with a PhD. And that means they maybe don't have the real world experience that you and I have. Yes, I'm bashing on PhDs. Yes, we all know Ivory Tower's out of touch, and I'm friends with lots of professors, so really take this tongue in cheek. But then it dawned on me, Damien, you have a degree in agricultural economics. You can handle this one. Now, we're not going to do supply and demand curves. We're not going to bore the hell out of you with, you know, the price of guns to butter and widgets and all that. But let's be really frank here. We know that right now we're in a little bit of a downturn, but I'm going to put this in perspective and you're going to feel very good about it when we're all done talking here today. Welcome to Ag Normal was the subject that I wrote about a couple of weeks ago. I want to expand on that in this very dialogue right now, and I'll tell you how it started. It started because this fall I was pheasant hunting with a good friend of mine, and and he's a lawyer, a sharp dude. I've known him since we were children, and he said, hey, 
what's the deal with the uh, this ag uh, situation? You know, my, my relatives own this farm ground in Indiana, and, and they're farmers, and, you know, I get together for the holidays. I understand things are a little bit off, but what the heck happened? What, what, how did commodity prices move down by 50% off of their highs of a few years ago? It's not like people on Earth stopped eating. Oh, 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 boy. You know how rare it is in one's life when you get to use that agricultural economics degree that you worked so hard and paid so much for at Purdue University so many years ago. The answer, of course, is, as you know, yes, people are still eating. In fact, even poor countries are eating better than they've ever eaten. The United States of America is eating well. Look around. Go to Walmart. Some of them are eating not necessarily well, but they're eating uh, lots of it. Even poor countries are eating better. The caloric intake over the entire globe has increased very, very nicely. It was only two decades ago, 20 years ago, and you've heard me talk about this before, but I'm, it's worth reiterating because it's such an achievement, a crowning achievement for the entire global industry known as agriculture. 20 years ago, there were 1 billion people on earth starving. Today, there are 800 million people that are food insecure. So we've decreased it by 20%. You're saying that's not that great of an accomplishment over 20 years. But during that time, we also increased Earth's population by 1.5 billion. You can write that down if you want. We increased Earth's population by 1.5 billion. At the same time, we took the number of chronically hungry people down from 1 billion to 800 million. Pretty damn good accomplishment, I'd say, for the industry of agriculture. The problem is that's very good for humanity. It is bad for prices. You see, we had this tremendous run-up that went on, the most recent one, the ag super cycle that we saw between 2005 and 2013. That was a super cycle. They are unusual. They are the exception. They are not the norm. We probably would have ceased in about 2012, except for there was a drought that came along. The whole plains and Midwest, where we grow a heck of a lot of our country's crop, was hit with a drought. So all of a sudden, you're taking 160 bushel corn and, say, my fields in Indiana down to like 90 or 80 because of a drought. Actually, probably even less than that. I think we're off by more than half. The point is that propped up prices. So the super cycle ran for about eight years. Super cycles come around about every 40 years. We saw it uh, the teens and 20s, I'm told, were really good for American agriculture. Post-World War II, we had a growing global economy after things got you know a little bit settled out after the, after the war was over for a few years. The 1950s saw a nice boom. 1970s, that's the one that I can remember as a child. We used to talk about corn beans and Florida farmers. They had a Cadillac. They had nice cab tractors. They had a grain set up. They farmed corn, soybeans, went to Florida. And then 1980 happened, really 1981, I guess I should say, happened. The world supply of crops caught up. And that's the reason that supply, that supply problem is why we have a price problem. That's what I explained to my friend. I said, yes, the world is still eating, Scott. But the reason we don't have $7 corn and $15 soybeans or $7 wheat uh, is because... Supply always catches up to demand. We in production agriculture for 10,000 years that we've been furthering human advancement have always gotten better at production year over year over year. And that is why we don't have high, high prices anymore. Because high prices create more product. 
High prices mean that more ground comes into production. So that's what happened, you see. I read an article, it was in the Wall Street, and I've been unable to find it. It was about how many new acres of production came in just during that ag super cycle we experienced. Because, of course, if you've got idle land in Brazil, and you're just looking out there saying, man, we can grow $16 soybeans on this dirt, bring out the bulldozers. And that's exactly what happened. We in ag in the United States are no longer the only player in town. Canadian people know how to make crops and North America, you know, and U.S. people know how to make crops and we've always been good at it. Western Europe was always pretty good at it, but India wasn't good at it. Ukraine wasn't good at it. Russia wasn't good at it. South Africa, Argentina, Australia. Well, Australia's always been okay at it, but you know, they've got some, some climatological issues that go against them for much of their land mass. Millions of new acres came into cultivation in places like Brazil. Obviously, I already mentioned that. Several countries ending in Stan. You can't even say their names, and they're selling wheat, for crying out loud. Uzbekistan? Yes. So the point is, this is agnormal in my opinion, because in general, the super cycle happens. It brings in more acres. It brings in ramped up production. The old thing in economics, we say the cure for high prices is high prices. That's an economics term. That's an economist's term, meaning, of course, the marketplace always works itself out. You can say the same thing about low prices. The cure for low prices is low prices. What do you mean, Damien? What's a, what's a cure? What's that? What's that mean? It means that if prices get low enough, people will stop producing. Producers will stop making their product and bringing it to market, and therefore prices go up. That's the supply and demand curve. If you were watching, I would hold up my arms right now and tell you that's the point of equilibrium. Here's my thoughts on the year 2018. Here we are. We're, uh, we're three weeks into January. If you're listening to this, that's when I'm being recorded right now. I think 2018 is going to be just fine. I don't think there's going to be a mass uh, exodus from uh, agriculture or farming. I don't think we're going to have people uh, out there sleeping in a gutter, you know, fall, falling, uh, falling uh, down on the street, you know, out of despair. Is it going to be a little bit dicey? Well, it's going to be about ag normal. According to the United States Department of Agriculture, Net farm income went up about 3 to 4%. I haven't seen the exact number. That was a prediction going into the end of 2017. 2017 was going to be up about 3%. So you could do a lot worse. This is the first year that we're bumping back up after we went down for four years. So I'd say, I'd say we're probably going to be okay. Let's talk about the things that are impacting our beloved industry of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. First off, we know we've got a president that's been in office now for a year. Lots of people don't like him. Lots of people do like him. The media seems to really hate him. I'm going to tell you, I'm a fan of some of what I see. First off, everyone says, what about trade, Damien? You're an ag guy. You know the value of trade. You took those classes. I did. I think trade's fantastic. And I don't think we're going to stop trading. We're going to still export farm goods to foreign markets. Did you hear that? We are still going to export farm goods to foreign markets. If you're listening to this podcast a year after I drop it out there and somehow it's been changed and we're and NAFTA got done and we just walked away from NAFTA, I you can call me up and say I was wrong. But I'm telling you right now, NAFTA might get a few amendments, but we're still going to trade because Mexico came on as such a wonderful customer. This is saber rattling upon our administration's parts. And frankly, I'm not, I'm not so sure it's a bad thing to rattle the saber, and I'll tell you why. Do you know what our trade deficit is with China? Right now, as I'm talking, 
right now, the most recent figure, our trade deficit with China is such that we buy $480 billion of their stuff. They buy $170 billion of ours. You want to hear that again? They buy $170 billion of our stuff. Not just ag, everything. Steel, cars, food. $170 billion, we buy $480 billion. So why is it that we're out here, we're, on, we're, 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 we're selling them one-third as much as they're selling us? So there's a little need for this saber-rattling. But we're still going to trade, and I'll tell you where we're especially going to trade agriculture. We're going to trade meat and protein products. I spoke at the National Pork Producers Council in December, just one month ago. I was their keynote speaker. I followed the United States Meat Export Federation guy. He talked about opportunities in foreign countries. Do you know that in foreign countries, U.S. meat is still prized? And in fact, fraudulent operators, counterfeiters, will take lesser product, meaning the crap that they produce in third world countries, and then reuse our boxes that say American beef or American pork or American chicken and put their crap in it to sell it. I'm not talking bad about our friends to the north in Canada. I'm not talking about our friends uh, in other parts of the world that compete on a on a, on a good and regular and normal level, I'm talking about third world operators that realize they have a crappy product and they can throw it in our boxes and make it look good. That was from the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We're selling a lot of meat. Do you know that right now there are five large pork processing facilities under construction in the United States of America? As I record this podcast in January of 2018, five large pork processing facilities being built. We're shipping... We're shipping, I believe the number was over one-third of our piggies, over one-third of our piggies are going overseas. This is fantastic. 20 years ago, we didn't send any of our piggies overseas. But it's important you understand that trade is not a silver bullet. As much as I go to these meetings and I sit through these agricultural conferences where I'm paid to speak, and then someone gets up and says, well, we can't lose trade, we can't lose... You're right, we can't lose trade, but we also must realize that trade is not a silver bullet because as I already pointed out... Brazil learned how to make food. Argentina learned how to make food. Uzbekistan learned how to make food. Ukraine learned how to make food. You understand where I'm going with this? The world is not as hungry for our goods in terms of our field products because they learned how to grow wheat also. They're no longer starving. Therefore, they're a little harder to deal with. They're a little bit more finicky. They're a little less desperate. Good for their stomachs. Good for their health. Bad for our prices. Let's talk about where else you see things happening in 2018. The year that I call Welcome to Ag Normal, and frankly I've been saying this for a couple of years, this is about where ag is. We have some that are making money, we have some that are struggling. We have margins that are tightening up. It makes you a better operator. It might make you a little frustrated. I understand that. The glory days, the glory days probably another 30 years away because ag super cycles, it seems to me, only come around about every 30 or 40 years. Let's talk about money. Told you about farm income. This is the bad part. Federal Reserve Banks of Chicago and Kansas City in their most recent meeting noted a deterioration in ag credit conditions. I did some sniffing around on this. I've got some business with Farm Credit Services of Mid-America. I speak to banker groups. I also speak to farm credit groups. I know that they don't get along per se because they don't like one another, but I have to work for both of them. I have friends that are agricultural bankers. I am related to people that are agricultural lenders. Here's what I'm understanding if you just kind of boil it down to discussions over a beer. Maybe 10% of the book looks a little bit distressed. 
maybe 10% of the loans look like they're in danger of going a little bit underwater. But again, this is not the 1980s. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're in agriculture, you're going to hear folks talk about the 80s. I'm not going to carry on about, oh, the 80s, the 80s, the 80s, because it makes you sound like an old person. But if you're younger than, say, 35, you don't remember the 80s. I will tell you what the 80s looked like. The 80s looked like everything you bought <laughs> became worth about half. The 80s looked like not only were you about now worth half of what you had bought for, I'm talking about real estate and, and even equipment, etc., you were paying 18% interest. You know how hard it is? To, imagine if you financed your farm on your credit card. As your, if your operating line of credit was at 18 or 20%. If you could get a line of credit. The 80s were terrible for the entire agricultural sector. I make the point that we held on to our farm. We were on a shoestring. We didn't come from any deep capital. My father was a herdsman's son. He milked cows for people that other, you know, other, other people's property. Uh, bought the first farm in, in the Mason family based on an insurance settlement because he had lost his arm uh, and had an amputated as a little boy. So when you think about that, I've been through some some bad economic times. I'm not doing this like, oh boy, I walked both ways uphill in a snowstorm to go to school barefooted. No, 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 I'm not pulling that at all. We're realists here. We're business people. That's why we talk about the business of agriculture for what it is, a business. The 80s, it is not. It's a little skinny right now. But you know what? Protein producers are making money. I believe poultry is making money. I know beef can be a little hit and miss depending on the time and the month and the day. And for God's sakes, those feed yard operators, I can't imagine. It's like, you know, they're, they're amazing. Told me something funny, the beef people. <laughs> they told me something funny, the beef yard people, the feed yard folks. They said, in the feeding business of cattle, you can count on one thing. You're going to have an annual meeting with your banker. It's just a matter of which one's on their knees. Sometimes when you're a cattle feeder, you're worth $10 million. Sometimes you owe $10 million. It's amazing to me. But the point is, you're making money. Corn, soybeans, a little tight right now. Other things are making money. They tell me cotton's doing very, very well. I don't know because we don't grow cotton. Here's what you must understand. Maybe you're looking at a, at a, at a break-even year. A break-even balance sheet still, still keeps you afloat. Even in bad times, a break-even balance sheet keeps everything intact. You know, during the run-up, we did very well. We put up grain bins around North America. We spent money on drainage tile, erosion control, new equipment, new pickup trucks. So if you have to have a few years where you don't re-up machinery, are you really going to be unable to perform? I don't think so. Come on. We put one-third the number of hours on equipment that we used to. Thanks to no-till and genetic engineering and all the wonderful new technology we have, I think you're going to be okay. Speaking about no-till, it brings me up to land. The Iowa State University Farmland Survey, they have a farmland value survey. They do it every year. I read it. I, I recommend you read it if you're sitting around in March, I think is when it usually comes out. You're a little slow. You're not, uh, you're not quite ramped up yet. So you, you know what? Pull up the farmland survey done by Iowa State University. They show that Iowa farm ground bumped up 2% in 2017. I was surprised by that. Now, granted, that's been down about 20%, but as I point out, if you're down 20% from your high, and all of a sudden you give up 2%, I mean, you get back 2%, that doesn't sound that great. But if you're down 20% from your high, and your high was two and a half times what it had been, Who's complaining? Come on, man. We did really, really well. 
Point I would make is, if you just bought farm ground in 2012 or 11 when things were really, really high, you're down 20%. But you probably have quadrupled your investment if you bought your land in 2000. Agricultural real estate is a long-term investment. The land is not upside down. My uh, guest a few weeks ago on here was Howard Halderman with Halderman Real Estate and Farm Management. He pulled up numbers on his own company, meaning all the sales that they did in the course of 2017, their numbers say that ground was up 8%. Farmland was up 8%. That seems a little heavy to me. But if we stagnate, if we stay right here, down 20% off of our peak after we basically quadrupled in the last 20 years or 19 or 18 or 17 years, that's not too bad. Mostly, what the farm credit people tell me, what the USDA numbers look like, debt to asset ratios, 14%. You can live with that, agriculture. You can live with that. Debt to asset ratios at 14%. A grand, this is across the board. That's pretty darn good numbers. Debt to equity at 16.2%. You can live with those numbers, agriculture. Welcome to Ag Normal is the subject on this podcast. You're listening to me, your host, Damian Mason, where we talk about the business of agriculture. I'm going to give you a couple more thoughts here because I want you to say, yeah, yeah, we're a little skinny over here, but we're doing pretty well over here. That's how... Ag has normally been because production always catches up with demand. I think that what we got going on in the uh, regulatory sector is really, really good. We, we've got a different president. We've got a different sort of administration. Some like it. Some don't like it. One thing I'm really a big fan of is getting rid of regulation. That's good for agriculture because, remember, agriculture is essentially manufacturing, right? What's, what, what we do is we take raw materials and we use weather and soil, uh, and, and we create something. So we're not truly a factory, as much as our detractors call us factory farms, but we are in the business of making stuff. Anything that regulates us out of business is obviously really, really bad for our country, for our pocketbook, for our communities. And we had an administration previous to this one that was hell-bent on harming agriculture. Pot Remember Waters of the United States? WOTUS, Waters of the United States. A trickle of water going through your farm was subject to federal regulation. Has federal regulation ever been good for business? Generally not. I was pointing out what was going to be next. Smell, dust. Go out and do what you do without creating a little bit of air problem. Go out and create create your crops without putting a little dust in the air. You can't do it. So I was really concerned about that. I like what I see on the regulatory rollback front. And I think that in the United States of America and Canada and the people who are listening to this podcast, you must admit, what we do is advance the cause. We're not just commodity producers anymore. And I, I applaud that. We want to get where we need to go in agriculture. We got to lose the commodity mindset and become more value-added, more differentiated products. Because if they're taking our, our boxes in third world countries and putting their crap in it to make it look like it's an American-raised broiler or an American pork loin or an American side of beef, what we need to do is capitalize on that even further. And in America that I know, in the North American agriculture that I'm familiar with, we'll keep innovating and come up with cool value-added products, things that the world demands. We just need left the hell alone. And variety uh, and value-added that we can do and the new products we can create, we five new pork plants going up, the things that we can do with our industry and the resources we have and the education we have are amazing. 
and an increasingly affluent global consumer base is going to continue to pay for higher quality, value-added products, which is what we can produce. But we can't do that if we're not allowed to expand and if regulation puts us out of business. I'm very, very bullish and happy about the fact that we look like we're heading into a non-imposing, a non-overly regulated environment for agriculture. Consolidations are probably going to continue because that's something else that a little bit of hard times breed. I got to say, I'm not the hugest fan of that. I, uh, I work for the chemical companies. I work for the equipment manufacturers. I work for agribusinesses. I understand why they consolidate. I understand the numbers. I get it. I'm a business guy. But here's the problem. I think some of that is short-sighted thinking. Just because margins got a little skinny, you fused two companies together, let's say, and you say, well, this gives us greater market power. This gives us greater, greater uh, economic uh, advantage, greater economies of scale. But I'm not sure that all the advances we made in the last 25 years would have happened if it were just commodity mindset and economies of scale thinking. Does that make sense to you? So my concern about Welcome to Ag Normal, where we are a little bit more skinny right now, where we're a little bit more like worried, where we're running for the exits yelling fire, that's not an innovative mind space. We're not going to be an innovator, an R&D type of company, if we're just saying, let's get really, really big so we can weather this economic downturn. So I'm not a big fan of why the consolidations happen. Speaking of consolidations, here's something I think we probably also need to be aware of. You're saying, man, I'm worried. If ag is a little bit down, Damien, if this is the new ag normal, they're going to be laying people off. Maybe. And here's why you shouldn't be too concerned. In the business of agriculture, we do have a lot of people that are pushing retirement age. It's just like the farmer. Oh, the average farmer's 58 years old. There's a lot of people in agricultural corporations and agribusiness that are pushing 60 or 70 years old also. So if we have to say, all right, it's time to cut things back a little bit, it's not going to be the end of the world because a lot of those people were looking at leaving the next year to two to five anyhow. You know where there's a big dearth is a shortage of ag talent. There's a lot of people my age that never got in because coming out of the 80s and into the early 90s, when I got out of college in 1992, it was a real, real skinny marketplace to get ag employment. So in other words, I think we're going to be fine on ag employment. I think we'll be fine on farmers. Will some producers go out of business? Yeah, but if they were 77 years old, they might have been thinking about that anyhow. Frankly, they're probably kicking themselves saying, I missed my window. Should have gotten out in 2013. Remember, everybody always says they should have gotten out when they realized then that they rode the, uh, rode the roller coaster one too many rides. I'm excited. I'm bullish about agriculture for the future. I do believe that our future is not just about a growing population. It's about continually evolving with better more innovative products, value-added products. Remember, 20 years ago, who would have bought hemp milk? Who would have bought rice milk? Who would have bought pasture-raised pork? So those are subcategories, I admit it. But a rising tide floats all boats. And I think ultimately the tide will continue to rise because of an affluent customer base here at home and an increasingly global consumer that has more money. An increasingly affluent global consumer is going to help us. But realize this. In ag normal, you've got to actually keep an eye.